This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Fadharni wa man yukadhibu bihadhal hadith. Sanastadrijuhum من حيث لا يعلمون وأملي لهم إن كيدي متين أم تسألهم أجرا فهم من مغرم مثقلون أم عندهم الغيب فهم يكتبون فاصبر لحكم ربك ولا تكن كصاحب الحوت إذ نادى إذ نادى وهو مكذوم لولا أن تداركه نعمة من ربه لنبذ بالعراء وهو مذموم فاجتباه ربه فجعله من الصالحين وإن يكاد الذين كفروا ليزنقونك بأبصارهم لما سمعوا الذكر ويقولون إنه لمجنون وما هو إلا ذكر للعالمين أعوذ بالله السميعي من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعضوان إلا على الظالمين والعاقبة للمتقين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا Dear brothers and sisters, the ayat which I just recited are the ayat from Surah Al-Qalam. One of the first surahs to be revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, according to the ulama, it was probably the fifth surah, the fourth or the fifth revelation to the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. And in it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and leave me and those that have plotted against me. Leave me and the evildoers. We will pull them in, we will reel them in from angles that they would never expect. We will take care of the wrongdoers. And though I might grant them respite, I might grant them respite, my plan is still stable. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions those that hold back from the Prophet those that mock the Prophet those that plot against the Prophet ﷺ. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives a message to the Messenger ﷺ not to lose hope. Fasbir, the one who tells everyone else to be patient. The one who tells the companions when they come to him. When will the help of Allah come? Will you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to hurry up the help, to hurry up the victory, to bring it as soon as he can? And the Prophet ﷺ has to continuously tell everyone, be patient with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says to this man sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Fasbir, be patient with the command of your Lord. And do not be like the companion of the whale. When he called upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only as he was swallowed by that whale. 
And this is very significant and very interesting. Because if I was to ask anyone, who do you think the first Prophet, the Prophet ﷺ was ever told about? Most people would say Musa salam because so much of the Qur'an revolves around Musa salam. Some would say maybe Isa salam, maybe Ibrahim salam, Abu al-Anbiya, the father of the Prophets, maybe Nuh salam, the first of the messengers. We would come up with many names. But the first Prophet that the Prophet ﷺ is told about is Yunus salam. فَاصْبِرْ لِحُكْمِ رَبِّكَ وَلَا تَكُنْ كَصَاحِبِ الْحُوتِ Do not be like the companion of the well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't even say his name as Yunus yet. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say to the Prophet ﷺ, don't be like Yunus. He says, لَا تَكُنْ كَصَاحِبِ الْحُوتِ إِذْ نَادَى وَهُوَ مَكْذُومِ Don't be like Yunus. Whenever he called upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he was swallowed by, the, by that well, and as he was in the belly of that well, and this is very significant because in Surah Al-Qalam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the first method, the first analogy, the first parable for the, for the people of Quraysh, and the first parable to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah tells the people of Quraysh about, إِنَّا بَلَوْنَاهُمْ كَمَا بَلَوْنَا أَصْحَابَ الْجَنَّةِ إِذْ أَقْسَمُوا لَيَصْرِمُنَّهَا مُصْبِحِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns the people of Quraysh not to be like the people of the garden, a people that came before, who had a rich, wealthy, generous father that used to give from his garden. But then, whenever their, his children inherited that garden, they became rough with the poor, they became ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they tried to harvest everything in their garden before the poor would come in the morning to beg and to pick from that garden. And Allah destroyed them and destroyed their garden. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns the people of Quraysh to remember your father Ibrahim alayhi salam who established the city of Mecca, who made dua for it. And when you turn your back on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything that you own will be destroyed and you will be placed back in a situation of desperation. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet not to be like Yunus alayhi salam in that situation. And briefly, dear brothers and sisters, why is this so profound and why is this so powerful? I have an extended version of the tafsir of this ayah, of these ayat online. I'm just going to give it to you in two minutes, inshallah ta'ala, and then move on. Yunus alayhi salam is a very interesting messenger. He's a very interesting Nabi. Because he was sent to the people of Iraq, particularly in Ninewa, a town called Ninewa. And Yunus alayhi salam dealt with mockery from his people and aggression from his people like many that came before him. And then Imam Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not destroy a people until they commit zulm, until they commit transgression and oppression and become aggressive with their prophets. Meaning Allah did not used to destroy nations because they were disbelievers. Rather Allah azawajal destroys nations when they become aggressors, when they start to oppress and when they start to harm the prophet and the believers. And with Yunus alayhi salam, he started to face that aggression. And as Allah says about every other nation before, أَهْلَكْنَاهُمْ لَمَّا ظَلَمُوا We destroy them when they oppress. So Yunus alayhi salam, as he's dealing with these people's transgressions and he's dealing with their kufr, he loses hope in his people. And so he warns his people of the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he leaves them without taking permission from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala thinking there is no way that these people will repent. And as Yunus alayhi salam warns his people, 
he sees the clouds forming in the skies, and the people see those clouds forming, Yunus leaves them. And when Yunus goes to board a ship to leave his people, his people do something which is almost unprecedented. They make tawbah collectively, they repent collectively to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they look for their messenger to teach them the religion. And Yunus alayhi salam, as he left his people and he boarded that ship, as he was on that ship, those same clouds that he thought were, that he thought was, were there to destroy his people, started to rain heavily upon that ship. And the ocean started to rock that ship back and forth. And the people threw their luggage overboard. And then they decided that they have to throw one of them overboard, so they cast lots. And it came upon Yunus alayhi salam. And Yunus, a Nabi of Allah, a Prophet of Allah, was thrown overboard. And as he was thrown overboard in the darkness of the night, a whale swallowed him and dove to the depths of the ocean. And as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, think about this. Yunus alayhi salam was in the darkness of the night, the darkness of the ocean, the darkness of the stomach of that whale, all the way at the bottom of that ocean. Think about how hopeless of a situation this is. And he realizes as he's in the stomach of that whale that he's not dead because initially he thought he was dead. No one's ever been in that situation. But he realizes that he can move his toes and that he hears the pebbles at the bottom of the ocean making tasbih. And he puts himself into a position of sujood and prostration as the acid is consuming him. And he says, Oh Allah, I'm calling upon you from a place that I don't think anyone has ever called upon you from before. I don't think anyone has ever been in this situation before. In the stomach of a whale, at the bottom of an ocean. And he calls upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the legendary du'a. A du'a that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, if we, make that, if we make that supplication in our times of hardship, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will relieve us of that hardship. La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimin. How perfect are you? La ilaha illa ant. There is no God besides you. How perfect are you? Inni kuntu min al-zalimin. I transgressed against myself. I have wronged myself. And as Allah Azza wa Jal heard that dua of Yunus alayhi salam, the whale spit him out. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَوْلَا أَن تَدَارَكَهُ نِعْمَةٌ مِّن رَبِّهِ لَنُبِذَ بِالْعَرَاءِ وَهُوَ مَذْمُومٌ Had the ni'mah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not come to him, the blessing of Allah. Interestingly enough, this surah starts off with, مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ You are not by the blessing of your Lord a madman. You are not by the ni'mah of Allah a madman. And Allah says, had the ni'mah of Allah not come to Yunus alayhi salam, he would have laid bare, naked, blameworthy, consumed, destroyed, hopeless, helpless. But instead, as the whale spit him out, and he lay on an island, and the acid was all over his skin, and the sun rose upon him, and as the sun burned him, he screamed out, continued to scream out, La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al He came back to his people, 
and found them worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and accepting Him and asking Him to teach them the religion. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَاجْتَبَاهُ رَبُّهُ فَجَعَلَهُ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ Allah chose him and made him from the righteous. And so Yunus alayhi salam, after this experience, was actually in a better situation than he was before. Because his tawbah elevated him. His repentance elevated him. And the Prophet said, No one of you should say, لا أحدكم, No one of you should say, That I am better than Yunus, Jonah, the son of Matta. No one of you should say that they are better than him. Why? Because this man was an honorable man. But Yunus السلام, made a mistake. He lost hope in his da'wah. He lost hope in his people. He lost hope in change. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested him. And had Allah left Yunus to himself, Yunus would have been destroyed. But instead he came back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How amazing is it that the Prophet in his most hopeless and helpless moments, the end of the, the humiliation of Ta'if, the end of the stoning, the blood, the spit, the sweat, the tears of Ta'if, the end of the rejection of Ta'if, the worst day of the Prophet ﷺ's life. Rasulullah ﷺ ends up in a garden. And the people that own that garden look out and they see him in his most hopeless situation, covered in blood, covered in, in hopelessness, covered in despair. And they feel sorry for him. And they send to the Prophet ﷺ their servant, Addas. And he goes to the Prophet ﷺ with some grapes and something to, to soothe the Prophet ﷺ. And as he hands the Prophet ﷺ those grapes, the Prophet ﷺ says, Bismillah, in the name of Allah. Addas says to the Prophet ﷺ that these are words that the people of this land don't speak. Where did you learn those words? Rasulullah he said, Where are you from? He said, I'm from Ninewa in Iraq. Rasulullah he says, مِنْ أَرْضِ النَّبِيَ الصَّالِحِ وَالْعَبْدِ الصَّالِحِ Yunus ibn Matta. You're from the land of the righteous prophet, the land of the righteous servants, Yunus ibn Matta. And Addas responds and he says, وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ أَنَّهُ نَبِي How do you know that he's a prophet? And the Prophet ﷺ says, هُوَ نَبِي وَأَنَا نَبِي He is a prophet and I am a prophet. And the prophets are brothers in faith. And Addas falls to the feet of the Prophet ﷺ and embraces him and becomes the only human being to accept him on that day. Can you imagine? Allah just sent the Prophet ﷺ early on in his revelation. Do not despair like Yunus wants despair. Don't lose hope like he once lost hope. And on the worst day of the Prophet ﷺ's life, Allah sends him a member of the ummah of Yunus alayhi salam to accept him as well. Dear brothers and sisters, in that is a profound message, a profound revelation in and of itself that you never lose hope in da'wah, that you never lose hope in the plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you don't have the right to ever despair because it was never in your hands in the first place. 
And as the world seemingly is falling apart, and everyone is seemingly rejecting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it seems like it's pointless to do anything, that is the moment where you should strive hardest because you don't know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's victory will come. And you don't know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help will come. And you should not be impatient with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when we look at the world today, so many times people say, you look at Gaza, you look at the coup in Egypt, you look at the massacre in Syria from Bashar al-Assad, the ethnic cleansing of the Burmese and the people in the Central African Republic, the oppression of the Muslims, some of the Muslims in China as they're not able to practice their faith anymore. You look at all of this dhulm in the world, this world as it's soaked in transgression and oppression. And you expect us to see hope. What do we do? It's depressing. I feel like I can't do anything. And subhanAllah, it's a condition that's called analysis paralysis. You become paralyzed by looking too much at the news. And by looking at the world and in, in, this, in, in, in its grand picture and not understanding the grand scheme of things, rather seeing the world as this whole and saying, it's all done, it's all over. And so I will no longer make any changes in my own home or try to change my own spirituality or try to impact my own community or my own country. It's all over anyway. What's the point? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you to work, to act and not lose patience in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dear brothers and sisters, there were many times in the past where people thought that the day of judgment was near. And subhanAllah, in the previous lecture you heard all of these examples where people said the day of judgment is coming. The hour is near. And it's intriguing. Everyone wants to know when the hour is. Everyone wants to know. Even in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the number one asked question in the time of the Prophet ﷺ was, Mata When is the hour? When is the day of judgment? And the Prophet ﷺ would respond not with an answer of, of despair, not with an answer of who knows. Rasulullah ﷺ would respond, Mada What did you prepare for it? Don't worry about when it is. What have you done? What have you done to prepare yourself for the hour? One time the Prophet ﷺ, he responded to that question and he said, By the time this young boy has gray hair, your hour would have already come. Meaning you'll be dead anyway. And when you're in your grave, it doesn't matter if the day of judgment is in a hundred years or in a thousand years, your qiyamah has already come. What have you done? How have you worked? Or have you just sat back and said, you know, one day the Mahdi will come and inshallah we'll all be good. And you know, this shaykh, he said that the day of judgment is the year 2014. The day of judgment is the year 2026. Based on my analysis, it must be this and this and that. You know what? These people are actually Dajjal. These people are actually Juj and Ma'juj. These people are actually this. It's already done. We're already living the end times. End of story. Sit back, go cling to a mountain and don't leave because fitna is rampant now and there's no need for you to do anything. It's all confusing. That message is unhealthy. And that message ignores the past. I want to share with you all a few incidents from the past. In the year 930, 930, the Kaaba was besieged by a man by the name of Abu Tahir, who belonged to a deviant sect known as Al Qaramita. Al Qaramita, they besieged the Kaaba. 
because they came from such a deviant ideology that they said that Hajj is a pagan ritual. And anyone who does Hajj is a Kafir. These extremists stood at the borders of Mecca and they massacred the people that were coming for Hajj from all over the world. Not only that, they slaughtered the people that were already on their way to the Kaaba and already within the borders. And they threw them into the well of Zamzam. And the well of Zamzam turned red from the blood of the people that were thrown into it. Not only that, they stole Al-Hajr Al-Aswad. They stole the black stone. And would you believe me if I told you that in the year 930, not a single person performed Hajj. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the panic in the world if no one performed Hajj this year? It must be Yawm Al-Qiyamah. It must be the Day of Judgment. But it wasn't. That group was destroyed. The black stone was returned. And Hajj continued. And the Ummah thrived. In the year 1095, November of 1095, Pope Urban II writes a letter to the Crusaders. And he says the following. He says, Behold, every soldier wearing the cross has been granted forgiveness by God for all of their past and future sins. If those who set out should lose their lives on the way by land or in crossing the sea or in fighting the pagans, their sins shall be forgiven. Oh, what a disgrace if a race so despised and the instrument of demons should so overcome a people endowed with faith in this all-powerful God and resplendent in the name of Christ. Let those who for a long time have been robbers and fornicators and adulterers now become soldiers of Christ. Let those who fought against their brothers and relatives now fight against the pagans. Let them zealously undertake the journey under the guidance of Christ. Let them murder every pagan man, woman, and child and desecrate their demon temples. This is the definition of religiously sanctioned terrorism. Not in the name of Islam, not in the name of Judaism, straight from the Catholic Church in the 11th century, from the, from the mouth of the Pope himself. The prisoners were freed from Europe to bring it out of economic bankruptcy under the veil of religion by capturing Jerusalem. And they sent all of these thieves and these robbers to Jerusalem and essentially told them to have their way with the Muslims. On December 11th, 1098, the Crusaders besieged the first stronghold of Asham, of Asham, which is modern-day Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. And they besieged a city by the name of Ma'arra. And they sent a message to the people in Ma'arra, and they promised that if they put their arms down, they would spare every life in Ma'arra. As the Muslims put their arms down and accepted to come under siege of the Crusaders, Bohemond, who was in charge of that army, in three days killed every man, woman, child, and beast in Ma'arra. And they wrote about it themselves. 
They set fire to every single masjid. They burned the city to the ground. And they did not leave until every house was demolished and every life was taken. Radolf, who was of that army, he wrote himself, he says, we boiled the pagan adults in cooking pots. We impaled their children on sticks and devoured them grilled. Can you imagine? SubhanAllah, this is what he's writing. He says that we lived out our most wild desires with their women and then we mutilated them and hung them by their breasts. Albert of Aix wrote, our troops ate the dead Turks and Saracens and we even ate their dogs. This is the brutality that the people of Asham were subjected to in the year 1098. Then, in the year 1099, under St. Augustine, Raymond of St. Augustine, they arrived at the city of Al-Quds of Jerusalem and they laid siege to Jerusalem. At that time, the commander of the army in Jerusalem was Iftikhar from Ad-Dawla Al-Fatimiyah, which was also a deviant group. And they made a deal with Iftikhar. Raymond sent a message to Iftikhar and he told Iftikhar, if you give up the city, we will allow you and your soldiers to leave in safety. Ibn Athir, he says that Raymond honored his word with Iftikhar. Meaning he let Iftikhar and his soldiers leave Jerusalem and essentially proceed to Egypt in safety. But the civilians were left in Al-Quds. The civilians were left in, in, in Jerusalem. And as they left, they surrounded the city and they killed every single one of the Muslims of that day. And they wrote that our horses ran in the blood of the infidels up to our knees. The Jews hid in their synagogues and they set the synagogues on fire. The Christians that belonged to the Eastern churches, first they demanded, because this included all of the other Christians, they demanded from them that the Holy Cross would be given to them, but those Christians refused. And so what they did was wait, they took their children and they banged them by the heads on the walls of the city of Jerusalem until they made them confess where the Holy Cross was being hidden. After they got the Holy Cross, they killed all of the Christians that belonged to the Eastern churches as well. They demolished Masjid Umar. The Masjid that Umar ibn al-Khattab, the spot where Umar ibn al-Khattab prayed in when he first arrived in Jerusalem. And they put a cross on top of Masjid al-Aqsa and declared Masjid al-Aqsa a church. This is in the year 1098. And in fact, subhanAllah, we even find that Shiraq, he actually took 7,000 skulls of Muslims and he made a mountain of skulls, what was known as a mountain of skulls. The skulls of the Muslims of that time. The year 1098, Masjid al-Aqsa has fallen and there is no more Salah in Masjid al-Aqsa, no more Adhan in Masjid al-Aqsa. Less than a hundred years after the, after the Kaaba was besieged and no one made Hajj that year. In 1114, Nur al-Din al the teacher of Salah al-Din sees a dream. And in this dream, he sees the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ looks disturbed. And Rasulullah ﷺ, he points to two men and he says to Nur al-Din, save me from these two dogs. 
So Nur al-Din immediately sets out for Medina. And he was leaving from Asham, and he was the commander of the army of that, at that time. And as he sets out for Medina, there were two men that were sent by Raymond from the Crusaders that posed as students of knowledge from Al-Maghrib, from Morocco. And when they arrived in the city of Medina, they pretended to be students of knowledge and they pretended to seek knowledge from the ulama of that time. And they took up residence close by the masjid of the Prophet and they started to dig a tunnel to the grave of the Prophet and Raymond had a plan of Augustine. Raymond had a plan that the body of the Prophet would be confiscated, brought back to Jerusalem and placed on a stick so that everyone could see the body of the Prophet desecrated. Can you imagine, subhanAllah, what these people were going through and that the evilness of that plot? And so every day these two men, they dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And when Nur al-Din arrived, they were this close. And Nur al-Din, he made an announcement. He said that I'm distributing gifts and charity from our gains in Asham because he wanted to see these two men and he knew that he would recognize them. So everyone in the city of Medina came out except for those two men. And he asked them, he said, are there, are there any men that are missing from those that have come out today? And they said to Nur al-Din, they said that there are two students of knowledge. And when we informed them about your offer, they said, we are zuhad, we are ascetics, we're in no need of money. So that they could continue their evil plot and not be exposed. And Nur al-Din, he said, take me to those two men. And he saw those two men. And those two men were executed. And there was cement, there was a barrier that was placed in front of the grave of the Prophet ﷺ underground so that no one would ever be able to take the body of the Prophet ﷺ again. Dear brothers and sisters, within this hundred years, Masjid al-Aqsa did not have adham, iqama, or salah within it for 93 years. Can you imagine? For 93 years, no one prayed in Masjid al-Aqsa. If you lived in this day and age, if you lived at that time, wouldn't you say to yourself that Yawm al-Qiyamah must be around the corner? That we're done with? That there is no hope anymore? That we shouldn't even try anymore? On top of that, you didn't have one group claiming to be Khilafah. Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala says that you had multiple Khilafahs. Multiple people all claiming to be Khalifa. The Muslims were confused. They were in complete disarray. And they didn't know who to give bay'ah to. People were confused. The Muslims were disunited. And in that era, as Rasulullah said, within every hundred years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a mujaddid. He sends a reviver. That is the era that Salahuddin al-Ayyubi rahimahullah ta'ala was born into. And he did not have interest in the Arab world because he was an Arab. In fact, he wasn't even an Arab. He was Kurdish. And his mother, may Allah have mercy on her, she had a dream before Salahuddin was born. And she said that I saw a sword in my stomach. Subhanallah. And Salahuddin was born, raised by Nur al-Din rahimahullah ta'ala. And Salahuddin understood that Jerusalem would not come tomorrow. He understood that he couldn't react emotionally. 
instead of plunging into Al-Quds, he united the Muslim world. He started to write letters to the Muslims. He started to drop leaflets all over the Muslim world, reminding them of their duty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He held weekly classes in Egypt, in Aqidah, in Fiqh. He changed their Adhan back to the Sunnah. He brought them back to the Sunnah. Then when he gained the hearts of the Muslim world, he formed his army. And he proceeded to fight back against the Crusaders. And one by one, he took city by city. Winning the hearts not only of the Muslims, but of the non-Muslims as well, because he did not resort to their evil tactics, to their dirty tactics. As he brought cities back under Islam, he spared the women and the children. He spared the innocent. And in some cases, he even spared some of the aggressors to send a message to the entire world that we are not like them. Ibn Shaddad rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the weight of the passion that Salah al-Din had for Al-Quds was so strong in his heart that if it was to be taken from his heart and placed upon mountains, it would have flattened them all. Every day he talked about Al-Quds. Every day he talked about Jerusalem. And the Muslims thought to themselves, look at us, look at our situation. How are you talking about Al-Quds? We have problems in Egypt, we have problems in Syria. The Prophet's body was almost stolen. The Hajj was, was prevented by this deviant group. What are you talking about Jerusalem? How are we ever going to bring back Jerusalem? But every day he spoke about it. Because the Prophet spoke about Asham. He spoke about Al-Quds. Though aside from Al-Isra' Al-Mi'raj, the Prophet never entered into Al-Quds. But the Prophet loved Jerusalem. He loved Al-Quds. And on the night of September 20th, 1187, Salahuddin arrives at the border of Jerusalem, of Al-Quds, with his army. And he was on the hills of Al-Hittin. And every night Salahuddin would go out and he would see if the lights were on at night. And if they weren't on for Qiyamul Layl and for Salah, when the people would come to him and say, aren't we going forth? Aren't we ready? He would say, this is where Al-Hazimah, this is where defeat comes from. And every night he went out and he monitored the people to see if they were praying Qiyamul Layl. And when he saw the lights on in the tents, and when he saw an ummah that stands before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at night praying and beseeching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for victory, he said, this is where victory comes from. And he enters into Jerusalem on the 27th of Rajab, on a Friday, the same night of Al-Isra' Al-Mi'raj. The night that the Prophet ﷺ, the day that the Prophet ﷺ entered into Mecca, on the day of Fatih Mecca, of the conquest of Mecca. And he enters in, and instead of subjecting the people to the torture and the oppression that they subjected the Muslims to, he shows them the mercy, the izzah, the dignity of Islam. He enters into Jerusalem the way Umar ibn al-Khattab entered into Jerusalem 500 years before him without a drop of blood being shed. 
You know, a few weeks ago there was a commentator who said that if the, if, if the Israelis put down their weapons, the Jews will no longer exist in Palestine or in Israel. They will cease to exist. Whereas if the Arabs put down their weapons, they will live in peace. What a lie! What a lie against Muslims! What a lie against this religion! When we entered into Al-Quds, we did not shed innocent blood. And subhanAllah, historians they say that the women, whenever Salah al-Din entered into the city, the women shaved their heads and they started to cut their faces up and they threw their children into the Red Sea because they were afraid of what would happen to their children. And the women mutilated themselves because they were afraid of what the army would do to them. Because they thought that we are like them. They thought that we would resort to the tactics that were used against us. But we're not like them. And subhanAllah, the victory that day for Islam was not just a victory of a group that was oppressed over their oppressor. It wasn't just a victory of the army of Muslims against the army of the Christians. It was the victory of mercy over dhulm, mercy over oppression and transgression. Al-ihsan, compassion, excellence over evil. And I want you to think about this, dear brothers and sisters. A lot of times people come to me and, and all of the different mashayikh and they look, around the, they look around the world and they see the helplessness and they see the hopelessness of the world and they say, shouldn't we be doing to them what they do to us? The motto of the terrorists around the world is that they kill our women and children, we should kill their women and children. What they do to us, we should do to them. The ends justify the means. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't teach us. That message in and of itself is flawed. It shows flawed aqidah, flawed creed. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never gives you permission to, to resort to unethical ways of jihad because of the situation of the ummah. Salahuddin did not take one innocent life in that desperate situation. The Muslims did not become helpless. They did not become hopeless. They did not become unethical because the Prophet ﷺ never became unethical, not even on the day of Uhud when he lost his uncle Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Even on that day, the Prophet ﷺ was outraged when he saw a woman from the other side that was killed in the battlefield unjustly. Why? Because our message is a message of hope. We know that victory comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know that the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes to us whenever we are right with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't need to resort to those tactics. We know that when we do our part, and when we stand up at night beseeching Allah azza wa jal, and calling upon Him, and when we do away with the sins that bring upon hardship to the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, victory is near. Victory is near. Because there were times in the past where the ummah was in a far worse situation. And the list goes on and on. The Tatar, the Mongols, and the havoc that they wreaked upon Iraq and Syria. The Crusaders. All of these situations, dear brothers and sisters, in the past. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought this ummah out of its darkness. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, upon the backs of a few individuals, a few people, re-establish the ummah of Muhammad Because this ummah, though at times it sleeps, it never dies. It never dies. 
And wallahi, every time I go around the world, every time I go to a different country, whether it's a Muslim or a non-Muslim country, and I see the people gathering to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, concerned for the affairs of the ummah, I become more optimistic. I can see shabab, youth, young people all over the world that are excited about their religion. There's a worldwide Islamic awakening of people, young people who now love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, love the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who are far more religious and practicing than their parents. We see it all over the world. And you might think to yourself, well, look what happened in Egypt. You know, look what happened in Gaza. Look what happens all over the world. And what I say to you is that through this process, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sorting out people. This is what Allah azza wa jal calls in the Qur'an, at-tamhis. He sorts out the filth from the gold. He sorts out the rulers. He sorts out the ulama. He sorts out the people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows the integrity of people. The people that love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that care more about the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam than their pockets and their selves and their families that love this deen and that are willing to do anything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remain ethical and principled in establishing that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised would be established on this earth. Allah Azza is lining them up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sorting us out. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is seeing who amongst us will act, who amongst us will continue to prepare. Because al-Nusra, the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is near dear brothers and sisters. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, مَنْ قَالَ هَلَكَ النَّاسِ فَهُوَ أَهْلَكَهُمْ In another narration he says, فَهُوَ أَهْلَكُهُمْ Whoever says that the people are helpless, whoever says that the ummah is done with, whoever says that, you know what, there's no hope anymore, he is the most helpless of them. And he's the one that's rendering everyone else a pessimist. He's making everyone else a pessimist. He's the one saying to everyone else, why are you organizing conventions? Why are you gathering in your masajid? Why are you doing these things? Why are you out there demonstrating and protesting? You're not going to make a change. These silly boycotts of yours, they're not going to make a change. This qiyamul layl and this so-called qulut and prayer of yours, you think that's going to make a change? All of this stuff, you think it's going to, you think it can stand up to the evil powers of the world? Wallahi it can. Wallahi it can. We've already seen it. Dear brothers and sisters, while many of us were too lazy to boycott Israeli products of that Zionist regime, the BDS boycott movement costed that Zionist regime $8.1 billion. That's two times the aid, that's double the aid that comes from the United States government. Your boycott matters. Your protest in the street, you're demonstrating in solidarity with your brothers and sisters. It matters because the Prophet ﷺ says in the A'zam al-Jihad, كَلِمَةُ حَقْعِ عِنْدَ سُلْطَانٍ جَاءَتْ That the greatest struggle is a word of truth spoken in the face of an oppressor. That hadith necessitates that you are not in a state of authority, you are not in power, but you know what? You will speak up. You will say, not in our name, not on our watch. We will not sit quietly while our brothers and sisters are being massacred. We will continue to raise our voices. We will continue to use the social media platform. We will continue to spread awareness. We will continue to boycott. We will continue to do away with the sins. And that's my first topic for tomorrow, by the way, is a personal awakening equals an ummah awakening. That Allah does not change the condition of a people until they change the condition of themselves. We will continue to make dua. We will continue to stand up. 
and will continue to have hope because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never let this ummah be disgraced. This ummah is a great ummah. This ummah has survived the greatest tests of time. This ummah has survived shayateen greater than Netanyahu and Sisi and Bashar. It has survived people greater than all of them. And you know, subhanAllah, I want to share with you all the story because I know that I'm over time now. I'm way over time, aren't I? I want to share with you all the story. How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Sheikh Abdul Hamid Kishk, rahimahullah ta'ala? Raise your hand if you've heard of that man. Sheikh Abdul Hamid Kishk, rahimahullah ta'ala, was a da'iyah, a preacher, an imam in Egypt. Not 100 years ago, not 200 years ago, actually he died in 1996. He was a blind man that stood up against the oppression of Jamal Abdel Nasser and the Arab nationalism of that time and stood for the truth. And he was put in prison over and over and over again and beaten over and over and over again because he would stand up there on the manbar every single Friday. And not only would he call them out for their oppression, he would call out the government for their economic injustices. He would call them out on the price of meat in Egypt. He was a grassroots imam. He was with the people. And every single Friday he got up there and he called them out. And sometimes they'd be waiting for him. As soon as he finished his khutbah, they'd throw him in prison again. And he used to say, Alhamdulillah, I'm blind so that I can't see the face of my oppressors. And he used to make dua. And one of the duas that he made was against Muammar Qaddafi. And this was in the 1970s. When Qaddafi said, he made an offer to Jamal Abdel Nasser. He said, that if you send, or, or rather he made an offer at that time to Sadat, to send the body of Jamal Abdel Nasser to Libya, where he would build a statue, build a tomb. And he said the people will come and make tawaf around the grave of Jamal Abdel Nasser. And he offered the Egyptian government $500 million for the body of Jamal Abdel Nasser so that people could come make tawaf around his grave in Libya. And Shaykh Kishk rahimahullah ta'ala, he responded to him. And he said, O Qaddafi, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you die a humiliated death, a death of humiliation, and that your people throw you, that your people pull you out from al-Magari, from the sewers, and they throw you in an undisclosed location. Wallahi, he made the dua in a khutbah. I ask Allah that your people will pull you out from the gutters, from the sewers, and throw you into an undisclosed location. And the dua came true, didn't it? And this man, rahimahullah ta'ala, never once, never once gave up hope. Never once stopped preaching. Never once stopped calling to the haqq. And you know, subhanallah, he sees a dream of himself on December 6th, the night before, December 6th, 1996. He sees a dream of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he comes to Shaykh Kishk rahimahullah ta'ala, and he says to Shaykh Kishk, Sallim ala Umar. Give your salam to Umar. And when he said, to salam, he said his salam to Umar ibn al-Khattab, he died. And he said then Rasulullah sallallahu and Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, they picked me up, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did my ghusl. And on the morning of December 6th, 
He woke up and he asked his son, how old was the Prophet ﷺ when he died? His son said, 63 years old. He said, I just turned 63 years old. And he gathers his family before Salatul Jumu'ah. And they're eating breakfast together. And he tells his family, before you serve breakfast, which is the custom in the Middle East that people get together before Jumu'ah. He said, before you serve breakfast, I want to tell you all of a dream I had last night. And he tells them this dream. And everyone is speechless and starts to cry. And his wife says to him, why did you share this dream with us? It's a dream of death. Why are you sharing this dream? And Shaykh Kisk Ta'ala, he responds and he says, Wallahi, I wish that things would happen exactly as I saw in my dream. And that day, as he prepares himself for Salatul Jumu'ah, the Friday prayer, this man Rahimahullah Ta'ala, used to make a dua every single Friday. And if you go to the Middle East today, you can actually hear the cars booming, not in the, not in the, the Sisi, post-Sisi, military coup run Egypt. No, no. They don't want to hear that voice. The cars tremble from the voice of this man, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He used to say, Allahumma ahini imama, wa amitni imama, wa bayna yadayk, wa ana sajidun laka ya rabbil alameen. Oh Allah, allow me to live as an imam, and to die as an imam. And resurrect me, O oh Allah, while I am making sujood to you, while I'm prostrating to you. And on the day of Friday, December 6, 1996, he goes into sajda. And he dies in his sajda. Not a sahabi, not a tabi'i. No, December 6, 1996. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala proved that this man was from as sadiqeen it was from those who were truthful. Dear brothers and sisters, why do I share this with you? The days of the glory of Islam are not gone. And the Prophet ﷺ says, As long as this ummah exists, there will always be people that are foremost. That are, there will always be people that are ahead of the rest of the ummah, that are working for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that see beyond the idleness of this world, that see beyond the purposelessness of this world, and belong to something special. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa promised that that will continue to exist. And I'll leave you with a little bit of hope. If Isa alayhi salam was to come, and Imam al-Bayhaqi rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Isa alayhi salam is the greatest companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Why? Because he meets the conditions of a sahabi. He was alive when he met the Prophet ﷺ and he believed in the Prophet ﷺ. He never died. And when Rasulullah met him on the night of Al Isra' and Mi'raj, he was alive and he believed in the Prophet. ﷺ. Therefore, Isa السلام, is from the Sahaba. And so here's the silver lining of Isa السلام, descends in our lifetime. If we meet him and we follow him, we will all be tabi'een, inshaAllah ta'ala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us and to make us amongst those that always work and that continue to plant the seeds of hope. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring victory to this religion on our backs and to forgive us for our shortcomings. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to purify us of the sins that hold this ummah back. And I ask forgiveness from the other mashayikh and from all of you for going over time. Jazakumullah khairan wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.